1: Hello, everybody. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared. January 20th, 2020, the first case of coronavirus is confirmed in the United States. Here's what we know. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China. The World Health Organization convenes an emergency meeting and the rest, as they say, is history. Economies shut down. Vaccines are raced into development. And just as it seems life is getting back to normal, COVID's variants roar in. Meanwhile, misinformation spreads almost as fast as the virus itself. And that is precisely where we come in. Through the process of debate, and a close examination of competing perspectives. Our mission is to bring out the truth while eliciting a deeper understanding of what's actually going on. Competing perspectives in the right setting can provide that nuance, especially when it comes to something as complex as a global response to a pandemic. And so today we wanted to give you a taste of some of our most relevant debates and conversations since this crisis first began to unfold. Now, the first conversation I had is with an epidemiologist, technologist, and author who worked to help eradicate another earlier pandemic. He is part of the reason you probably don't know anyone with smallpox. Here is Larry Brilliant.
2: This is a really terrible disease. This is an awful disease. Everybody who's paying attention is frightened. And of course, we all have in mind someone that we love and who's near and dear who we want to see get vaccinated at, at some level. It's a terrible disease. And we you, you don't stop to say, my God, it took smallpox 200 years after we had a vaccine, before we had a global vaccination program. It took polio 70 years after we had a vaccine until we had a global polio eradication program with vaccines. That's not the thing you think about when you confronted with the, the binary possibility, will I get vaccinated? Will my mother get vaccinated? I think this is totally expected. And uh, we should just be kind uh, and, um, and understand that this is a quandary and uh, we, we need to get intelligence square to have debates on it.
1: When smallpox was taken on in the 60s and 70s, w- was there a divisiveness about it? Were there arguments in the way that we're seeing now? Um, no, I
2: think 99% of people were, were positive smallpox could not be eradicated. Not much of an argument. Um, uh, smallpox was the fourth disease to be considered to be eradicated by the World Health Assembly, uh, which is the organ of which WHO makes decisions. All the health ministers come together in May in Geneva when, when there's not a pandemic and you can't travel. Uh, and uh, we had tried uh, eradicating malaria. We had tried... Um, eradicating yaws, and we tried eradicating yellow fever. And we had failed as a world to do that. Uh, Malaria, because we could no longer use DDT, yellow fever, because monkeys got yellow fever and they were not willing to hold their hand out to be vaccinated, I think, in a nice line. Uh, And yaws for a non-venereal spirochete for a different reason. So smallpox was the fourth disease to be eradicated. In many ways, it was the most preposterous because it was ubiquitous. Uh, in the 20th century, the first 75 years of the 1900s, smallpox uh, claimed between 300 million and half a billion victims. It's like nothing we've ever seen before or since. And it was a 10,000-year-old disease that had always, always been around. But a Russian professor and uh, minister of health and, and uh, ambassador to WHO Uh, named uh, Vladimir Zhdanov, an unsung hero of the story, proposed at the WHO meeting that the U.S. and the Soviet Union, then having 20,000 nuclear missiles pointed at each other, um, that the Soviet Union and the U.S. collaborate on a global program to eradicate smallpox. And there was a lot of negotiation, a lot of skepticism. um, And initially, The U.S. didn't want to do it, but ultimately when uh, D.A. Henderson, uh, an American who was then running the EIS service at CDC, was selected to run it, um, I'd say the Soviet Union and the United States really collaborated very well. And the magic of that program is that uh, uh, doctors and epidemiologists from 30, 40, 50 countries, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, all kinds of Christian denominations, every color of the rainbow, all work together. Hmm. And uh, that moment in time is what led to the eradication of smallpox with WHO in that leadership position. Uh, I'm not so sure that we have the same favorable um,
1: tailwind today. And yet, in record time, the vaccines emerged. On August 23, 2021, the FDA approved the first COVID-19 vaccine. The Pfizer-BioNTech was a real milestone in the battle against COVID. But with its invention, also came real questions about equity and how the intellectual property behind emerging vaccines should be evaluated in the midst of a global crisis. It seemed like a debate worth having. So we brought in Thomas Kuhn, the Director General of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Associations, to square off against Brooke Baker, a law professor at Northeastern who specializes in intellectual property and access to medicines. Have a listen. Brooke, let's get started with you and take a minute or two to tell us your basic argument for why vaccines should not be protected by patent protection in this moment as a response to COVID-19? What is it that you're going to try to convince our listeners of?
3: Well, I I think uh, there are are three basic arguments. Uh, First, there's been massive background public financing of of vaccine technologies for many years, including particularly for COVID-19 vaccines. A report just issued yesterday, had estimated that even before 2020, $17 billion had been invested towards the uh, vaccines that are currently being deployed against against COVID. So there's been, and then, as people know, massive investments as well, uh post uh you know the coronavirus coming on the scene, uh with with Operation Warp Speed in the US alone having funded over $13 billion towards uh, product development, clinical trials, and and early manufacturing upscale. So there's been, contrary to the premise that companies have been the major investors, that that does not seem to be true. Secondly, this is an unprecedented global pandemic, which threatens to recircle the world as new variants are discovered. If we don't... uh, uh, immediately begin to greatly expand supply and increase equitable access, uh, we are going to face the, the pandemic uh, for years to come instead of uh, per- perhaps bringing it to its knees in, in a much shorter time period. And then in, I guess the third point is that we, we've let the status quo exist for a year now. Companies have basically had untrammeled rights. And and what is the consequence? The consequence is inadequate supplies, artificially restricted supplies, artificially high prices, and grossly inequitable access where, for example, the vast majority of vaccines that have been distributed thus far have been distributed to rich countries uh, and poor countries lag far, far behind. And current estimates are that, that many people in Lower and middle income countries might not receive vaccines at the current pace until 2023 or even later. So um, we are all at risk if we leave the status quo as it is.
1: All right. Thanks very much, Brooke. Uh, Thomas, I'd like you to respond, not right now, immediately going point by point in response to what Brooke said, uh, because that's what we're going to do over the course of the conversation, but you, just your basic argument for why these patent protections should be staying in place at this time. And if it does respond to some of what Brooke said, that's fine. But we'd also like to have that conversation be more articulated in a few moments.
4: You know, during our discussion today, we really must not lose sight of the millions of people who have lost their lives. This is really the biggest threat the world has faced in terms of public health and lives and livelihoods have been impacted beyond all recognition. The COVID-19 pandemic has really shone a light on the critical role of the biopharmaceutical industry in combating this public health crisis through expertise, innovation, and resources. Let's face it, a year ago, few people would have believed it possible not to have won but several safe and highly effective vaccines, and few would have hoped that we would be witnessing delivery of doses of approved vaccines being delivered to Kigali, Accra, Abidjan, Nairobi in Africa at the same time as the first vaccines reached Tokyo. So before we get into the weeds on debating patterns of COVID-19 vaccines, let us acknowledge a few facts. We have a first moonshot fact that innovation has brought us multiple vaccines in record time. Before COVID-19, the fastest vaccine ever developed was against Ebola, it took four years. COVID, it took 326 days. And this is due to unprecedented collaboration where you had academia teaming up with biotech, biotech teaming up with big pharma and big pharma from rich countries with developing country manufacturers. The second moonshot, and I think few people realize the scale of that is pre-COVID-19 global vaccine capacity for all the vaccines, measles, flu, shingles, polio, hepatitis, was 5 billion doses per year. Now, in 2021, we are talking about 10 billion doses for COVID-19 vaccines alone. Therefore, we are talking about trebling the global vaccine capacity, which would not have been possible without this unprecedented collaboration. And when you actually look, where do these vaccines come from? Biggest vaccine manufacturer this year will be India. Now, most of the vaccines in India are due to tech transfer, which means you have big pharma teaming up with the likes of Serum Institute or Biologically and others and we really need to make sure the vaccine to fight these pandemics must be free to everyone the world over. Because we all know no one is safe until we all are safe. But we are in a war against the virus. We are in a war against time and time is not on our side. And we need to be careful not to be Distracted by political debates about patents at the time where we see everybody doing what everybody wants us
1: to do from the industry. Thank you, Thomas. All right, so so let's let's talk about all of this. Um, and again, we're going to go point by point through uh, both of your arguments. But the starting place the, that I would like to to jump into is overall. Um, I think a profound but clear disagreement on whether the situation is somewhat in hand now, somewhat being addressed uh, in uh, ways that can be depicted as a success or not. So I hear, Brooke, from your your saying that the situation is kind of a mess, kind of terrible, uh, that so many people are not being vaccinated in large parts of the world. And I hear from Thomas, yeah, that may be true, but look at how almost stunningly successful, this effort has been, that, that, it, that enormous credit should go to what's happened so far. And that in that, there is promise for a, a, a quite clear cut solution to the larger problem and that that problem is being solved. So I, I'd like you to, to respond to the, I, I would say the, the, the more positive scenario that, uh, that Thomas is laying out, vis-a-vis your perception that things are really not, that we shouldn't be talking about success?
3: Okay, so I, I think that's a fair question uh, and a, uh, to, to answer. Um, so I, I think we can all agree that there was an unprecedented uh, period of open science uh, with the sharing of the uh, genome for, for COVID-19. Uh, we, we know that there was uh, an explosion of publishing uh, that was open source publishing And scientists really did cooperate uh, extensively. At the same time, government poured massive amounts of uh, money almost immediately to the uh, prospective vaccine manufacturers. Uh, Again, Operation Warp Speed, over $13 billion. And there's no doubt that that, those public resources spurred some uh, product development by the uh, private industry uh, that the money was given to. Uh, one of the issues is that there were essentially no strings attached to that public funding except uh, early supply to – and preferential supply to rich country buyers that, that had helped fund the, the product development and clinical trials and early manufacturing capacity. So uh, – we, we did get things done quickly and it is, uh, it is a testament to the, the scientific cooperation that occurred in early stages. And it is a testament to public funding. And no one would deny that, that private industry contributed its resources towards this effort as well. And nor, nor does anyone really claim that those, uh, private sector uh, efforts should not be compensated in any way. Uh, the, the question is, well, we had that uh, massive, those massive investments, and that and that period of a kind of uh, open science and, and, and cooperation. And then we, but we basically left the existing intellectual property regime in, intact. And it's not just patents; it's also trade secrets, uh, which are vital uh, background to the to the technology transfer that's needed so that someone else can produce these vaccines. Um, and we left those questions in in the hands of of industry. We see now, you know that there have been a lot of contract manufacturing agreements, basically big uh, the the vaccine innovators entering into partnerships either with big uh, other big pharma companies or, or bigger pharma companies. And with vaccine and which is Which is
1: being done voluntarily, and that's that's Which is being done
3: voluntarily, and it shows that technology transfer is possible. Uh, you know, we often hear arguments from industry that, that technology transfer to developing countries is impossible, but of course they've entered into, as I understand, over 150 such contract manufacturing agreements thus far uh, in the initial stages of the pandemic. Um, but there's underutilized capacity. And there's vast numbers of people who have not yet received vaccines. Um, you know, I would, I would have loved to be having, having this debate last year so that we could have had some even more expansive production this, this past year and we'd be in a very different place right now. I fully agree.
4: This is a one-time challenge. It's the biggest public health challenge since Spanish flu in 1918-19. And I think the industry has really responded as I, as a long-term industry associate, would always have hoped the industry would. This is not business as usual. This is business not as usual. And what you saw Brooke was talking about, I would have wished this would have happened a year ago. Now, come on, how can you go even faster than the 326 days? How can you actually get the game-changing new technologies as fast to the people? And what more could you have hoped than we brought together suppliers vaccine manufacturers from developing countries and from industrialized countries. And we spent two days on the Chatham House rules to talk about where are the bottlenecks, what more could be done, what kind of partnerships could be done. I can tell you there was concern about the shortages of glass vials, of lipid nanoparticles, which are needed to wrap up the mRNA vaccine, which have been so much game changing. The filters, the giant plastic bags you need for the single-use bioreactors. People, engineers, scientists from India, China, as well as Europe and the US, they are concerned by these bottlenecks. uh, Sharing know-how and the willingness to share know-how was not mentioned once because that's what's happening right now on a large scale.
1: So, So, Thomas, is your point that we don't actually need to change the rules because in a de facto way, The situation under the existing rules is addressing the situation as best it can be. You know, I
4: really believe that the industry is behaving in a way you would have hoped it to behave during a global pandemic. And also, a lot of it is also due to public-private partnership. We in Europe, we watch with a bit of envy how the U.S. border was really able, due to speed, willingness from the government to invest at risk and co-finance at risk research and development and scaling up manufacturing, but also actually do what the U.S. is so good, which means not insist on heavy bureaucratic procedures, but allow entrepreneurial spirits uh, to do what they are supposed to do. And Paul Krugman last week in the New York Times, in my view, wrote an excellent op-ed where he compared the disappointments and frustrations in Europe with the success on this vaccine development and rollout in the U.S. The U.S. really, we, in the rest of the world, we owe a lot. We wouldn't have that many vaccines if it hadn't been for the fast action in the U.S.,
1: Next up, we looked at the rules that govern how people behave during a pandemic. Should workers and students be compelled to get their jabs before returning to school and their places of employment? It's a debate that is still going on. But at the time, we brought in Professor Lawrence Gostin, a professor of law at Georgetown, who specializes in the law of public health, to debate Michael Anderson a Wisconsin attorney representing nursing home employees who were told that the COVID-19 vaccine was a requirement for all staff. That's a quote, requirement for all staff. And that employees who failed to get the vaccine were gonna be laid off. I'll go to you first, Michael. Can you just take one minute to tell us what your position is on whether vaccine mandates are justified in the fight against COVID-19?
6: Certainly, John, thank you for the opportunity to uh, explain one position on this important issue. I don't believe that mandates are the proper way to approach this. There is a way to encourage uh, vaccination, but the heavy handed approach, I believe, does more harm than good. Where we are right now, we are clearly dealing with the emergency use authorization drugs. Everybody's familiar with these have uh, been rolled out in very rapid fashion. They're not fully FDA approved and, uh, Federal uh, law uh, speaks to no one should be able to force anybody to uh, be vaccinated when we're dealing with these emergency youth authorization uh, uh, vaccines. I have clients that are very concerned about uh pre-existing conditions. They know people who have had adverse reactions. They see others who have had uh, exemptions carved out for religious reasons. They question why from a civil constitutional reason. They simply can't object for that reason. There are a lot of employers out there that encourage uh, vaccination. I think that's a good thing. I think the carrot is a much more appropriate uh, method than the stick. And I think I've
1: used up about my one minute. Yeah, you filled that minute well. I want to take the same question out of Larry Gostin. Uh, Larry, are vaccine mandates justified in the fight against COVID-19?
7: Yes, they are. I mean, I, I believe in incentives as well, but mandates are justified. You know, people do have rights to make decisions about their own health and well-being, but you don't have a right to expose another person to a potentially dangerous, if not lethal, um, infection. And we know that COVID-19 is such a lethal infection. Um, so you don't have a right to go unmasked and unvaccinated in a crowded place, in a workplace, in a classroom. Uh, and uh, so I do believe that these things are justified. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has specifically said that under an emergency use authorization, businesses and universities can require vaccines they have in the past um, with other vaccines. And I think it's entirely justified to make everybody feel safe and secure to be in an environment where um, they can be protected.
1: All right. Thank you very much. So so what I'm hearing from both of you is a, a series of conflicting uh, agreement on the notion. I think you both believe uh, there's there's no anti-vaxxer voice in this conversation. You both believe in the uh, the the place of vaccines in society. It sounds as though you both believe that a, a vaccinated population, a va- population vaccinated against COVID-19 would be a good thing. You both believe that uh, positive incentives uh, are, are a way to go. Uh, where you disagree is on the mandatory... Uh, use a mandatory requirement of these vaccines for people who for various reasons uh, are hesitant in the case of this particular this particular vaccine um michael I want to go back to you um and you you made you you made a point about these vaccines not actually being fully approved which I I think sounds like it's the crux of the crux of your argument that the the, the reason this vaccine is, in your p- opinion, uh, justifiably resistible is because it was passed as an emergency use authorization. Can you talk a little bit about that?
6: Um, yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, historically, I think most people at least have a rudimentary understanding that uh, there are usually uh, trials that go on for years and years and years before a drug, whether it's for mental health or whatever it is, is fully rolled out, because we just don't know on the front end what some of the long-term ramifications may be. Uh, yes, we are in unique times, and there are times when uh, certain drugs will be given a emergency use authorization. But the government realizes that there's a opposite side of the coin there, that because there may be some adverse reactions on down the line. They take the position, and I believe law supports it, and I think it's the proper approach that because of that, we can't have mandated use. Again, we can have incentive incentives for it, but mandating it, um, I don't believe it's appropriate. And also adding into that, if... An employer takes the uh, blanket argument that everyone being vaccinated is uh, required, there are holes that are shot all over that because there are exemptions for religious use. For instance, a person might object to the fact that some of these drugs came through stem cell research. There's exemptions for pregnancy. So we do have people in the workplace that are not vaccinated. So that does shoot a bit of a hole in the argument that everyone there is, or must be vaccinated.
1: Okay, I, w- I want to come back to the hole in the argument part, but for the moment, I want to stay on the issue of whether these uh, this vaccine, uh, as you argued, is, is somewhat under-tested, under-examined, uh, under-trialed. Um, and I want to bring that to Larry. And one other thing, I just want to break the fourth wall. Uh, right now, I'm kind of directing the conversation, <clears throat> but I would be delighted if the two of you want to sort of just keep going back and forth with each other without my intervention. If you feel motivated to uh, to respond or break in, just please go for it. Don't wait for me to, uh, to, in- to invite you into the conversation. But in this one case, Larry, so Larry, w- w- what about Michael's point that, um, that this thing from the perspective of the public went a lot faster than most vaccine development and that that's a cause for concern on the part of a lot of people out there?
7: Okay, well, first of all, let's just um, deal with the emergency use authorization, because that's, if, in, if indeed that was the crux of the argument, it's going to just completely melt away, um, because within weeks, um, the FDA is likely to give um, a full licensure um, to uh, uh, at least the two messenger RNAs, certainly by the end of the summer. Um, when uh, universities are back, and so I think um, we those,
1: those would be Pfizer and Moderna. Just to those would be Pfizer
7: and Moderna are the okay. two messenger RNA vaccines, and and Johnson and Johnson will follow suit. Um, you know, the, 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 this is a uh, an extraordinarily well tested vaccine, um, much more than the public realizes. Yes, it was developed very quickly because we had new technologies, and that was a miracle of science, but we didn't skimp at all on the clinical trials. Um, There were tens of thousands of people in the clinical trials. There have been over two and a half billion doses globally of COVID vaccines um, given. This is one of the most safe, one of the most effective vaccines um, that we've ever had and the public should not be under an illusion that somehow um, we've skipped corners. It's a really, really good set of vaccines Um, and the risks of getting COVID-19, irrespective of your medical condition or your age, are much, much greater um, of you having an adverse result than these vaccines. Um, So these are highly safe, highly effective vaccines and the regulatory agency that actually regulates the workplace has specifically said that employers can do it under an emergency use authorization. So I think that is a red herring and we've never seen an emergency use authorization in the way we have here because this is not this is a, a globally population-wide rollout. It's not an emergency rollout. It's a rollout based upon the entire population. There are great vaccines, and I encourage everyone to get one. It's safer for you, and it's safer
6: for the others. It's fine. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Larry comes at it from a professorial standpoint, and I appreciate that. Maybe someday I'll be doing that. Uh, I'm coming at it from more of a lawyer standpoint. So Larry says red herring. He suggests that these uh, vaccines may... Sooner rather than later, who knows, get full FDA approval. The fact of the matter is, right now, uh, they don't. I am standing on pretty comfortable ground that uh, I'm in a good place with, uh, with my clients in this uh, current lawsuit. But one thing that Larry brought up, and it's an interesting discussion, I think, There's uh, as long as the United States has been here, there's been a tension between individual liberties and the greater public good. Uh, This goes back, you know, going on 250 years, and it's still present here. This, I think, is one of the more recent iterations of that. So I think we can recognize that there is a greater good for public as a whole— to, uh, vaccinate. But if we lose sight of individual liberties, which our nation is built upon and I'm sworn to uphold the U S constitution and my state's constitution and all statutes that have been enacted and all common law, I have to uh, look very closely at individual liberties. And, uh, So we can talk about public policy, but we also have to talk about law as well and how this is going to shake out in the administrative uh, regulatory uh, setting or in the courts or through additional legislation. Uh, In Wisconsin right now, there is uh, legislation that uh, has passed the uh, state assembly and state Senate that would prohibit employers from mandating it. We have a Democratic governor that most likely will veto it. But this, again, goes to that tension. And how do we resolve it? Maybe there's education, but I still think, and I get back to my earlier point, that mandating it, hammering someone over the head with a stick is going to do more harm than good.
7: I absolutely respect Michael's point of view about the importance of individual liberties. I was actually the head of the British Civil Liberties Union and I was on the executive uh, committee and board of directors of the ACLU here in the US. So I I do understand the importance of individual liberty and I respect that uh, enormously. Um, But we have a long tradition, both legally and ethically in the United States, that you do have individual rights yourself, but you don't have the right to expose another person uh, to a dangerous infectious disease. And, you know, you might say that other people can protect themselves, but people get vaccinated so they can protect themselves, but also to protect others. And there are many vulnerable people who can be vaccinated, but they can't mount an immune response because they're immunocompromised or there are um, young people or others that are unable um, to get the vaccine. And so I don't think that a civil liberties or legal point of view, an individual does have the right to expose others to an infectious disease. And that's exactly what you would be doing if you walked into a crowded workplace um, or a crowded uh, classroom. As well, you know, in Methodist hospitals, There's a long tradition of some hospitals uh, requiring influenza vaccines, which are actually less effective um, than COVID-19 vaccines. Health workers have a special obligation to keep their patients safe.
1: But I think what I think, Larry, that Michael is saying is that those vaccines have much more of a track record. And, you know, it's just the case that we we don't have... Three or five or ten years of experience to know long term the impact of these vaccines that's that's just a fact, and it seems to me it's a very powerful part of his argument that we don't know long term effects or or do we am i wrong about that is it predictable or something like that it is
7: yes um, it's a it 's an extraordinarily good question and i've you know i've just um you know, been talking to uh, the former head of the CDC's immunization program about that. I asked that specific question because, of course, you're right. You know, we've we we've had you know oh you know two and a half billion doses of these vaccines uh, administered globally, which is more than you know most vaccines ever get, uh, and they've been very very safe. The truth is, is that we don't have long-term data, but that it's biologically implausible that we would have a long-term safety risk. And also, historically, with vaccines, if you're going to have a safety signal, they tend to emerge within days or weeks. It's extraordinarily unlikely that you're going to want one day, a year from now, wake up and say, oh, wait, this has been a catastrophic safety problem. Um, We just don't have any experience of that in terms of vaccines. Um, And so all the scientific community is speaking, I think, in a single voice in saying that these vaccines are very safe. They're safe now and they're safe in the medium and long term. Um, And we'd have to fly in the face of that and risk a very, very bad pandemic if we didn't get an extraordinarily high immunization coverage in the United States and globally,
1: so Michael, it sounds as though Larry is, to some degree, asking the public to trust to trust the science, uh, and and for the reassurance to come from that direction, from that impulse. Does that would that persuade, for example, your clients? And I want to talk a little bit about the case that you you're carrying on in uh, Wisconsin.
6: Uh, yes, I mean. It, There is the the broader uh, public health uh, argument. And I think a, a lot of people would agree that we should be moving in this direction. But sometimes a good message gets lost in the way it is being presented. And this, to me, is what's happening with these mandates. I believe there is a way to incentivize individuals to be vaccinated. I still think it's the wrong approach to penalize them. My clients are working class people uh, in a working class county in Wisconsin, and some of them had to make a tough decision. Do they get vaccinated even though they are opposed to it and then possibly lose their housing?
1: Well, finally, in this roundup, the question of vaccine passports. And so we took that one on also, pitting Professor Peter Baldwin, who's a history professor at UCLA, against Jay Stanley, a senior policy analyst with the ACLU. Stanley has done a lot of writing on the issue of privacy and technology topics. Have a listen. So the question before us or the questions before us uh, come down to the pros and cons of what's being called a vaccine passport, by which we don't literally mean probably don't literally mean a passport, but what we're talking about more broadly uh, than a classic passport is a system where basically to get into a place, maybe a restaurant or maybe an airplane or a classroom or or another country, you have to present authenticated proof that you have been vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. And there are some tensions in this issue. Uh, what are the benefits of such an arrangement? Does it ensure safety? But also, what are the negatives in terms of privacy and in terms of creating haves and have nots? On the whole, the question we're going to be looking at is, will a system that accords rights of entry to the vaccinated really help us get out of this pandemic mess in the best way possible and is doing so going to do more harm than good? That's basically what we're going to be discussing. And I want to go first to Peter Baldwin on that basic question, the notion of having what we're broadly calling and loosely calling a vaccine passport. Again, we can talk about what we mean by that. Will it do more good than harm or more harm than good?
5: Uh, I'm going to approach this by taking a step back, because it seems to me that the question of vaccine passports is sort of a bit of a screen for the broader question of vaccines and whether or not we want to encourage them a vaccine passport besides uh, or precisely because of the convenience that it offers those who have been vaccinated is a way of encouraging those who haven't to do so so i think we need to realize that it's a sort of a, it's a way of approaching the question of do we encourage do we even mandate uh, vaccines so if you'll forgive me just a couple sort of basic points about vaccines um herd immunity is a public good that means that it's something that has to be achieved collectively. The question is whether or not vaccines lead to herd immunity in the case of a corona vaccine. Uh, Some vaccines are sterilizing in the sense that they uh, prevent transmission. Uh, Some are not. We don't yet know whether the coronavirus is. The medical evidence so far is encouraging but not definitive. But we do know that those people who have been vaccinated tend to be asymptomatic, they tend to be less transmissive, they have lower viral loads. And so, in a sense, it's a kind of partial public good, I guess we could say. So, if we agree that we need to know whether someone is infected and whether someone poses a threat, then it seems to me we also need to encourage them to vaccinate. Now, we could instead test at every venue, as you say, every restaurant or whatever, but that would obviously be cumbersome. But for those who have to be tested, and who tests positive, the result is the same. They're excluded. So, whether somebody proves their safety through a vaccine passport or through a negative test seems to me to be largely irrelevant. The two things are effectively equivalent, and the choice between them is a matter of convenience. And if we agree that it's legitimate to determine who's infected and thus a threat, it seems to me that it's best to do so in the most convenient manner, which is to say, using the pressure that vaccine passports exert. Because these passports bring you some advantages, if you have one, they put indirect pressure on those who haven't been vaccinated to become vaccinated. But of course, so does constant testing, which is effectively the alternative. So we could require vaccination outright, but obviously we haven't gone that far yet, even though we do for other vaccines. And it seems to me the vaccine passports are kind of mild form of encouragement that gives those who vaccinate an advantage of by sparing the constant testing that they otherwise have to undergo. So my take on this is vaccine passports uh, are quite useful, and yes, we should have them.
1: All right. Thank you very much. I, you said so many things that raised a number of questions I'd like to come back to, but I first really want to give
0: Jay Stanley a crack at the same question. Jay, take a couple of minutes on this. There's no question that in some limited circumstances, one needs to prove that one has been vaccinated. That has always been true, although those circumstances have been very, pretty much limited in the U.S. to schools and healthcare facilities. It seems like the question that everybody's talking about right now is not should anybody ever have to prove that they've been vaccinated, but should we construct a new technological system and infrastructure for allowing people to do that especially via their smartphones. I agree that the 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 primary push, the primary need of our society right now is to reach herd immunity. If we can get to the point where COVID is a disease with low levels like measles and the like. Then it becomes much easier to do contact tracing and to suppress it. And this whole conversation becomes moot in a way. And it's far from clear to me that the existing systems of paper documentary proof are deeply broken and in need of replacing. It would be kind of a Herculean task to build the kind of technological systems that people are envisioning here. Um, It would require selecting a system from the many competing proposals that have already been advanced. The Washington Post counted 17, um, achieving widespread adoption of that system by both individuals and verifiers, the institutions that want to verify their status. And you'd have to have software applications for major phone operating systems, software that vaccine providers would use to, um, to load the credentials onto patients' phones, and software that verifying parties would need to read people's credentials. Um, This is the kind of thing that in software development would normally be unrolled over a series of years and not rushed out in a matter of weeks or even months. Um, And the danger is that we'll be rushing into something that is bad in a number of ways, has bad side effects. Um, Number one, it could be inequitable. A lot of Americans don't have smartphones. I believe it's about 15 percent, according to surveys by Pew. And those are disproportionately some of those from our most vulnerable communities, including People who are low income, with disabilities, are incarcerated, are homeless, as well as more than 40% of people over age 65. And if not done right, this kind of a system could be very privacy invasive. For example, allowing the centralized tracking of when people present their passport. And it's not just a question of COVID vaccines. We could also see this, once instituted, um, become something much bigger. Pretty soon you're asked to load your other vaccinations or your other health records and other records. It could be a very, very handy system. And in fact, there's a huge um, desire by many in corporate America and elsewhere for a um, authentication system. And I think you'd see all kinds of authentication um, use cases poured into here. And pretty soon it's carrying your phishing license and your gym membership and everything else. Um, and so if it's done badly from a privacy point of view, that could have um, effects that go way beyond COVID. And, it could, and even if this system itself doesn't um, expand in that way, it could set a precedent for other systems which are being worked on. There's a whole conversation going on around identi- digital identity and authentication systems. Um, and if we're going to do this system, if we must have this kind of a system it must be privacy protective for all those reasons. Um, and but you're, you're
1: also saying, Jay, that you don't think we must have this kind of system. I just wanna be clear on that. You're saying, you're, you're sort of doing a two-part argument. It's Let's keep it really limited, but if it has to become less limited,
0: we have to be careful about it. Yeah, I think that's right. I, mean, I think that um, I'm deeply skeptical of the need of it. Um, I understand some of the arguments, but if we are to have it, it needs to be done right. And I'm further skeptical that it will be done right.
1: Well, that's it for this roundup of how Intelligence Squared has approached the many debates and disagreements that have arisen during the pandemic about the pandemic. I hope you enjoyed this multi-part COVID series. Intelligence Squared, I want to remind you, is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Conner is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff in Leeds Production. Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Marlette Sandoval is our producer. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much for joining us.